welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. If you're not subscribing, hit that button, write a review, share with a friend, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got Mike Hardaway, the founder of Hardaway Wire, but also formerly the director of communications and senior advisor for Chairman Hakeem Jeffries in Congress. Uh, today we cover all post-election things, including the progressive and moderate split in the Democratic Party, our expectations for Biden's cabinet, and lastly, his 100-day strategy and what that needs to be. Listen up. everyone we're back this is a final pod of the year we're going to take a break for our own sanity uh but we'll probably be back in january around uh the georgia race but we've got our friend mike hardaway on joining us mike welcome to the pod thanks for having me guys yeah man so catch us up you know you for you know mike is a long time you know well he's originally a chicagoan Definitely shout out Chicago, but uh, he's been he's been in D.C. You know, he was in the Obama White House. He's most recently working with Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. Mike, kind of catch us up with uh, a little bit on what you're focused on right now and, you know, kind of before we dive into things. Sure. Um, so I left Congress recently to launch a startup. And so we're focused on the future of news with the idea that there's a smarter, better way to inform people than a lot of the, the stuff that we're all reading today. And so I think it's an exciting time to be creating something because I think COVID has actually created an opportunity for a lot of people to disrupt whatever in industry they're interested in. And I think as it relates to media, there's a lot that's broken there. And I think that people generally are sick of reading bullshit and they really just want to know what's going on. And I think that's a real opportunity. Yeah, man. I mean, and, and that's part of one of the reasons we're excited to have you on. We took a week off in between the election and we, we wanted to take a step back. You know, all these exit poll numbers are coming out and we know that the final numbers probably won't be really clear for months to come. And we actually were revisiting a little bit and we saw that Pew put out numbers in 2018 that actually were much tighter than the numbers that everyone's always sourcing. So, for instance, you know, we always talk about, I think, like the 51 or 52 percent of white women who went for, for Trump. But in the, the Pew numbers that we looked at in 2018, it was actually like 48 still goddamn high and close, but it isn't that like proverbial majority number that everyone wants to think. Obviously it went up to 55, at least for now, but could even go higher once we find out what the real numbers are. But, you know, you're someone who's been inside this, you know, do you think we're doing ourselves a bit of a disservice by just immediately, you know, combing over these exit poll numbers, throwing in these like big takes on who, what, who won it for people, who lost it for people, when we know that these are going to be kind of reevaluated in months to come? I think it's a waste of time because we look at the wrong thing. You know, like everyone wants to see what Trump's support was with black males or Hispanic males or all these sorts of people. From my perspective, there's one number that counts the most. And that number is what was your support among independents? And obviously Trump won that in 16. Biden won that this time around by 14 points. And in all the battleground states, he won that group by double digits. And from my perspective, that's the meat 
of deciding who wins a presidential election every four years, it's not any one particular ethnic group as much as it is this large group of people in the middle who vacillate back and forth, depending on who the candidate is. Biden won that group by 14 points, and I think that's the most important statistic coming out of the election. I read this this book, the uh, what is it's the Ezra Klein book. I don't know if y'all have read it, but uh, why we're so polarized. And he mentioned in it, he so he actually so he didn't do the uh, kind of like the original the primary research, but he um, cites a book that does a study on independence and how they've changed politically in terms of their political leanings over the decades. And in the seventies, so I'm going to try try and explain this. So what it what it says is. Registered Democrats and Republicans were in the in the 70s were less predictable in their voting patterns than in their partisanship uh, voting patterns than independents today. So basically, independents today are more partisan leaning and more predictable than actual registered party members in the past. So it's kind of like it shows how the polarization has created this cleavage over time of just predictable voting patterns and in basically saying that like independents are less so they're less swingy than we actually think they are. They're more predictable in their, in their voting patterns. Have you like seen that Mike? Um, I don't necessarily agree with that from the data that I've seen. I think the foundation of what he is saying is accurate as it relates to how they've evolved over time. But I think that as it relates to the way that they vote every four years, and even, I think even every two years as it relates to congressional elections, there are a significant number of people who are just in the middle. They don't consume political news every day. They don't read the headlines every day. They're not that engaged. And in any given election, they vacillate back and forth depending on who the person is that's running for that office. And they aren't necessarily married to one side or the other. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think what was coupled with that study was the... The, the concept of what I wasn't familiar with, familiar with until I read it was negative partisanship, where you're getting more independents who are less voting for a particular candidate of a party and more so voting against the other party. So I think the predictability comes out when you map the negative partisanship dimension of it rather than, oh, I'm a party member, I'm voting for this party, when people in the middle who are independents aren't thrilled about any party, but they're more so voting against one or the other. There are millions of Americans who are not party people. They don't care about either party. And I think, you know, in 2020, and I think this exacerbates as we go along, that becomes more of a thing where, you know, like in 16, you had a number of moderate Democrats who said, I'm gonna vote for the other guy. And I think that happened vice versa in November of this year. And I think that you're gonna see more of that, people who are wed to, particular personalities or members as opposed to voting down ballot uh, for one particular party. Yeah, that's true. The down ballot thing is, is definitely a huge, this is just huge different other variable. Cause we talk about down ballot, you know, obviously that becomes more regional, like national politics. And I think politics in general, the parties have become more national in terms of their issues, the, the, the topics that animate people who, who identify with parties, they become more national after the civil rights movements of the 60s into the 70s and 80s. It didn't happen all at once, um, but it happened more gradually versus down ballot is just inherently more regional. 
you know, you have different congressional districts, you have, you're voting for uh, mayors and governors. So it's not necessarily, that's where the national parties stop. So it's interesting to see how, you know, people, whether they stick with parties all the way to a down ballot extent, or they're more like cross ticket when it comes to down ballot stuff. Well, I guess like Florida and California had like the two big examples, right? You know, Florida going for $15, even though they went Republican, and then California, you know, voting against affirmative action, but being, you know, 68% for Biden. So, I mean, and and by the way, guys, look at the house races from the election where you had a number of districts where people voted for Biden, but they also voted for the Republican candidate. And I think that speaks to the idea that, you know, many Americans want a divided government. Like they don't love the idea of either side having a run of the show, right? And we don't know what's gonna happen in the Senate. You know, I think that, you know, Democrats have a good shot there of at least splitting that, splitting those two runoffs. But I think that um, the numbers from the election bear out that many people say, I'll vote for Biden for president. However, I'd like a divided Congress so that we have a check and balance on all the things that happen. I mean, the, the bad part of that is, from my perspective, is that, look, we need a massive stimulus. That's just the situation we're in. You know, we're in this national pandemic and Congress needs to pass a massive stimulus. It'll be incredibly difficult to pass that if Mitch McConnell has the gavel in the Senate. I was gonna say, do you think it's, and it seemingly seems to be this way. I mean, Maryland's got a Republican governor. Massachusetts has a Republican governor. These are very yeah. blue states that seemingly people seem to want some sort of compromise within the way that they're voting. Yeah, and I think that people in blue states will vote for a reasonable Republican. I think that that has happened over the years. I think the issue is that, you know, as it relates to the Republican Party, you're seeing fewer and fewer elected officials who, you know, operate somewhere near the middle, right? And I think that to your point, Governor Hogan in Maryland is a perfect example of people saying, I'm fine with Republicans. I need someone who's reasonable and sane and willing to work with the other side. I can't deal with the partisanship and the hateful speech and all these other things that come with many of the people that have been leading that party over the past few years. Yeah, or Charlie Baker. Charlie, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. We got a Republican governor in Massachusetts, but also um, Elizabeth Warren represents Massachusetts in the Senate, you know? Mm-hmm. Sorry, Keep, mm-hmm. I was gonna say moderates vote that way though, because they're like, okay, these governors seemingly aren't crazy when it comes to like climate change and Roe v. Wade. So like, I feel good there, but whether true or not, I believe the narrative that they're gonna save me more money. So I'm gonna go down that line. And I was gonna say, you know, Mike, you're an Obama guy. And, some more kind of right-leaning papers of love to say that the Trump years before COVID were better than the Obama years. And I'm like, I mean, these things don't just like work that way. You know, things carry in. Like when we look at Obama years, we even look at Clinton years, like blue led years have actually been incredible for the economy, but somehow we've just gotten destroyed on the image of that. We are like, everyone thinks even like a lot of Democrats that, I want a Democrat to win no matter what, but like Biden's going to be worse for me than Trump is on the economy. Like, how do we overcome that? It's just a lie, right? I mean, the fact is that Brock tripled the stock market during his presidency. The fact of the matter is that we inherited a terrible economy when we started our transition team at the end of 2008. Like, I remember 
from the transition team, we had this like book. And the book I was sorting through was the book from TARP. As you may recall, several months before, we had the, I think it was the $800 billion bailout from TARP. And so I had this book of like the deposits for all the banks and like what their financial situations were. And I remember thinking, we're in horrific shape. I mean, the economy was really bad. It was terrible. We come into 2009 and we have this recalcitrant Republican party in the House and Senate that doesn't want to work with us. And, you know, Mitch McConnell comes out of the gate and says, my number one priority is to make Barack Obama a one-term president. So what that meant was that he wasn't interested at all in working with us on anything. And notwithstanding that, you know, President Obama turned that around, slashed unemployment. Again, like I said, tripled the market and really gave birth to like this robust clean energy sector we have now. And all of that becomes forgotten when we get to the Trump presidency and people talk about how great things are under him. When he inherited that, it's like his, listen, the Trump presidency is a microcosm of Donald Trump's life. He inherited an excellent economy, just like he inherited millions of dollars, right? He messed that up just like he messed up millions of dollars, right? He committed multiple crimes, just like he did before he became president. And the, the idea that Republicans are better for the economy or better for business, it's just a lie. The only, I think the foundation of that argument is one of naivete, where people think, they think from a scarcity mindset of, I need a tax cut so I can have more money. But Democrats grow the economy, which gives you more money. And that's a much better way of going about this. And so, Mike, I, w- I was gonna say, I, I w- we're gonna, I'm gonna, I want to definitely go into this moderate progressive thing. But before we move on that, I want to keep on this for a second, which is I hear a lot, especially in recent years, that you know, Obama did a lot, but he could have done a lot more, or he actually didn't do anything for the black agenda. There's no different under him than for anyone else. You know, I, I always tell Ed and other friends, I was like, you know. It's really easy to make these like knee jerk, just like blanket things, but like that, that <laughs> we need to bring on like a constitutional like or congressional like scholar because clearly a lot was done and it's like maybe you weren't immediately impacted, but that doesn't mean at a macro scale. And I'm curious if there's any just like simple things that you from your time can point to that just like dispute that, <laughs> that comment. The biggest and most obvious thing is the Affordable Care Act which gave health care to millions of black people. Millions, right? And those who couldn't afford it, it didn't matter. They now have dental care and health care and all these other things, right? But I mean, it doesn't need to say health care for black people for people to understand that that disproportionately helped black people. That's the major thing. But also, for instance, he reined in these student loan providers, right? Wherein as it relates to the amount of money that you had to pay each month, he put a ceiling on that, right? Like he put a lid on how aggressive they could be in terms of coming after people. And I think that is something that we all take for granted, but it's something that we have to look at in terms of, he delivered that and that helped again, millions of black folk, but also other folk as well. And so the idea that he didn't do anything for black, black people is ridiculous. I mean, you know, at a foundational level, there are hundreds of black professionals that he gave a start to that now have 
these incredible careers who have then gone on to hire other black people and mentor other black people and continue that cycle. Obviously everyone knows about My Brother's Keeper, um, which was incredibly impactful as well. And also I think that if you look at uh, the Justice Department under Barack, it wasn't perfect by any means, but I think that he forced local and state law enforcement across the country to really take a look at hate crimes that had been cold cases and, and crimes that the Bush administration failed to take action on. He made them take a look at that. And Eric Holder was at the centerpiece of that fight, but he did a significant number of things in that regard. Right. And even just like Mike Brown, Ferguson, you know, rebellion just, you know, erupts out there. He sent Eric Holder down there to investigate what was going on. And they uncovered that municipality was plundering black people, just sort of over hitting them with tickets and, 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 and just basically using the black population as a funding mechanism for the state. So that doesn't happen if, if Obama doesn't send Eric Holder, you know, and even, and even keeping with the policy stuff, Fair Sentencing Act in, you know, 2010, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was something specific. To you don't think Billy Barr is going to look agenda. into this? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that's, that's an excellent point, Eddie, because we don't pass First Step Act in 2018 without the Fair Sentencing Act and without the foundation that the Obama administration gave us before we pivoted into the Trump presidency, right? Like all the conversation, so the beginning conversations with the First Step Act started under Barack, right? And so we essentially had this coalition from both sides to get the bill done in 2018 because it started several years before that. And, and Brock convened those conversations. He and Eric Holder brought people to the White House and we had those conversations. And so we don't pass historic criminal justice reform without Barack Obama. That's good. I didn't, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know. I didn't make the connection. He was absolutely critical in that regard. And also just like last thing that I'll say, like it's, I just, I just think it's just an unfair critique. I mean, okay, listen, the election of Obama or even even before that, Obama campaigning, and then, you know, he wins Iowa in the, in the primary. And it's like, he can actually win the, the, uh, 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 the primary to be elected to run in the general. And then in the general election, and he gets elected and everything. And everybody's like, okay, yes, it, it obviously radicalizes the right. You know what I mean? The Tea Party is born. Like, all of these things happen that lead to Palin, that lead to Trump. You can fucking trace the line. But it also radicalizes Black people. We see, like, the, a height that just didn't, it was not attainable before. And we're bringing, we're hot with our history and we're bringing all of that to the table. And we're hoping for these things that, you know, a president who is not a king can't necessarily deliver. So, I mean, we have high expectations, but it's not our fault. It's not Obama's fault. But I think you have to account for that in the critique. It's just, I just don't think it's it's a it's yeah. a fair critique, you know? There, Eddie, there's two points that I want to make to support that. Let me just tell you guys two quick stories. Two friends of mine who worked on the Obama campaign in Florida told me two incredible points that substantiate this. One of them was he was working in North Florida and they just set up the campaign office and they were trying to figure out, you know, what was happening. And he tells me that one day some of the local like drug dealers from the neighborhood show up to the campaign office and they're like, yo, man, how can I help out? Like the, like the guys stopped selling volunteer for Obama, yo. That's crazy. That's crazy. But it's not as crazy as this next one, which is 
one of my boys was working in Liberty City in Miami, which as you guys may know, is like, you know, one of the worst projects in America. And, you know, like when you, like in the summer, everyone's outside, right? So he says, so he's canvassing and he says he walks into the main entrance and like everyone looks at him because he doesn't live there. And everyone, everyone's thinking, what is this guy doing out here? So he says, I'm thinking, oh shit. And he says, this guy runs toward him. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing over here, man? And my friend is like 6'4", 230. He's a big guy, by the way. And my friend's like, uh, I'm working for Obama, man. And he, ho- and he hands him a flyer. He said, the guy looks at it, pauses. He says, I fucks with Obama. Y'all let him in. Y'all let him in. <laughs> and he like goes in <laughs> and everybody leaves him alone. Like, that's insane, oh, man. I love that. <laughs> That's that's crazy. Yeah, that's a great story. Yo, it's, yeah, it's like you, you with Obama, you good everywhere. It was it was it was a difference maker, man. Well, let's you know go, rewinding a little bit, and obviously we were talking a little bit off air about this AOC article, but obviously the biggest hot take all over at least Twitter and online has been this kind of moderates versus progressives, and we kind of already went into the main thing that you said it was just independence, but uh, kind of diving into that. You know, when I when I hear people talking about this stuff, I actually kind of believe both, and I don't I don't think either I don't think either side necessarily has a fault. And sometimes I wonder how much political theater is almost also necessary to show that like that your constituents that are voting for you that you kind of stand for what you stand. Like Joe Manchin is obviously more of a Republican than Dem, but you know I looked it up. He he votes with the Dems about he votes he voted against Trump about fifty percent of the time. So he's not like a full straight Republican, even if people want to say that. He's in white ass West Virginia. Like, what do you expect this guy to be voting for? And like, he sure as hell is not for defund the police. That's not like a shocking statement. And like, also we know where AOC stands and also like understand where, you know, progressive movements and activists need to be on messaging to push stuff forward. You know, when we were talking about student loans, even a few years ago, that was like a crazy thing. And now Biden might, it could be an early like big ticket for him. So to me, I feel like I'm for, I'm more progressive, but I'm for either side, just defend, if you know your constituents, stand up and talk your thing. But I'm curious if where you kind of fall into this, if you think it's actually like truly detrimental in either way. The first thing that everyone has to know is that the media exacerbates and exaggerates this topic every single time. And they do their best to make a big deal of this democratic civil war and the left versus the middle and Alexandria versus whomever in the middle. And it's completely ridiculous. I mean, we saw this in the aftermath of the election where, you know, Dems in the House lost a few seats. And every reporter in Washington wanted to write a story about how it was a sort of civil war in the House and, and what was going to happen. And, and I spoke with a number of those reporters. And what you guys need to understand is that those are conversations they're had all the time. And dozens of caucus meetings and other meetings, Alexandria, Ilhan, Barbara Lee, all, sort of all that set on a regular basis have these open conversations with people in, in the middle about the decisions that we make and the things we're gonna go through. That's no new thing. That's not a big deal. Right, and it sells papers, but that's not anything that's novel. I think that it is a partnership that is required between progressives 
and moderates for us to be able to operate. There is no majority without moderates. There just isn't. It's a math question, right? It's a math question. You need 218 members, right? If you don't have 218, you don't have the majority in the House. You only get the 218 by having a number of moderate Democrats in the House. If you only go with progressive policies, you never get to 218 and Republicans keep the majority in the House forever. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, progressive policies are the gasoline for many of the things that we believe in and have gotten accomplished over the past several decades, right? And from the Affordable Care Act to, you know, the Voting Rights Act and everything in between, progressive are the engine and foundation for sort of the things we've been fighting for. And by the way, I don't mean the progressives that have flared up over the past few years. I'm talking like the Congressional Black Caucus in the 70s and 80s and 90s were like the original fighters for all of the things that we have been talking about over the past few years, right? Like the Barbara Lees of the world and, and those sorts of people have been fighting for this stuff for decades. And it is not a question of who do we believe or who do we think is right because Again, there is no majority without the moderates, and there are no big ideas without the progressives. And, you know, at the end of the day, the two sides always or often work together to pass the things that we need passed. And that's the thing that matters the most, right? They shouldn't, just, they shouldn't agree on everything because they believe different things and they come from different places. But at the end of the day, they always team up to get the stuff done that we need. And also, I think that, look, you, you live in New York, you know, like we're coastal guys. And dude, I've been, like I went, I'll never forget this. I went to work on a campaign once in South Dakota in the middle of the winter. And having done that, having worked in Florida and all these other places that are not New York, LA or DC, I have an understanding that I think most people need to sort of come to, which is that, most Americans don't have our perspective on life, on, on any of the things that we deal with. And it's easy to live in New York or LA or DC and have a certain view that we need Medicare for all, or we need the Green New Deal or any of these things. But you have to go to Nebraska, you have to go to Michigan, you have to go to all these places and talk to people there and understand what we're up against to get that done. Right? And I think when moderates have this conversation about you make it harder for us, it's because it's insanely hard to get elected as a Democrat in Oklahoma or in Texas or in Wisconsin. It's really hard. And so when things happen, where members who are from the coast say things, those things are attributed to the people who represent those places in the heartland and make it difficult for them to get reelected. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't put forth our ideas. That just means we need to be smarter in terms of the way that we collaborate together to get our agenda moving forward. This, I can't help but think about at John Lewis's funeral, you know, RIP, um, Bill Clinton just evoking Stokely Carmichael as mm -hmm. something to. <laughs> It's, it's crazy. It's, evoking Stokely Carmichael as something to continue to steer clear of in our modern democratic 
movement. And listen, I love Jim Clyburn, Clyburn. Um, and but he's you know he's part of more of sort of, sort of the the moderate wing, you could say. You know, hugely hugely instrumental in terms of uh, being a proponent for Biden in the primary um, and getting us to where you know where, where we need you can't take that away. But like with Bill Clinton bringing it back, I, I just can't help but remember that this there's a division that was just always there. And it's, it's just the big bright line is like, how do you deal with racism? Do you, so like you talked about the house seats that we lost and everybody is, you know, heeing and hawing about the Senate. Oh, why didn't we just get the Senate majority easy the way that we got the, 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 you know, uh, our executive seat with Biden. And it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of like you, you go to the, the Senate races or the house races and toss up districts where you're having to compete against Trump supporters, you know, right-wing supporters and moderates, you know, had tough races and kind of sitting back and you're right, the media does blow it up, but you know, moderates feeling like damn progressives in coastal cities, you're fucking it up for me. You're messing up my money. I I can't help but tie that back to just sort of the respectability politics of how you deal with racism from, from a political lens and having to go across the aisle or, or, or whatever analogy you want to use with the right. So it's just like, and it, so the whether it, today's progressive movement, which was yesterday's black nationalist movement, maybe, you know, who knows um, if you want to tie it like that. But it like, I, that seems to be the essential issue. And it just sounds to me like, hey, progressives, be more respectable. Don't go out there and, and rioting and protest, you know, do better in terms of respectability politics so we can swing these Trump voters in these toss-up districts in these House and Senate races. And I just think it's a complete um, farcical view. But you're right. Like, I'm looking at it through the media lens, though, Mike. So it might not even be that deep the way that, you know, you're describing it. The problem, you know, as you guys already know, the problem is the foundation of this country sort of is racism. And that's never left us because we've never really addressed it. And so I, I think... I've never believed in the idea of respectability politics. What you have to do, again, is think of this mathematically, right? If you have to get to 218, the question is, what do you, how, what do you want to do here? Like, do we want to raise hell, which I, which I absolutely agree with in so many situations, but you got to understand if you raise hell, you may lose a seat in Oklahoma, or you may lose a seat in this place. That, that's not me saying that's the way it should be. That's me dealing with the reality of the situation. And so if that's the case, you know, like we did this this math when it came to impeachment. And, you know, there are a number of us that, you know, essentially a year in with Trump, you know, we were making the case that we should impeach the guy. And Speaker Pelosi held us back, you know, for months and months and months because, you know, she was concerned about the moderates in certain districts and she wanted to protect them, which I understand. My position was this guy's committing multiple crimes. You can't let that go unanswered. And I think that speaks directly to the point that you're making, which is you have to figure out a way to reconcile the two. And I don't know what all those answers are, but you have to be true to who you are and the principles that you have. But you also have to deal with the idea that, yo, if you don't have the majority, you can't do anything. There's no impeachment. There's no Affordable Care Act. There's no anything until you have the majority in the House. And so I don't know what that answer is as it relates to how the two reconcile. I don't think they need to agree most of the time. I think that's the whole point. 
I think the point is like the the Rashida Talibs of the world are supposed to raise hell, right? Like that's her job. It's not Kendra Horn in Oklahoma's job to raise hell. It's Rashida's job to raise hell. But they're on the same team. So what should happen at some point is they should come together and figure out how they want to, you know, move forward together. But understand that raising hell on one side causes hell for the other side. And so as long as we understand what we're dealing with there, then we can figure it out. But here's the thing. Rahm Emanuel said this to us once. He said, he said, you have two options. He said, do you want to be right or do you want to win? And, and what he meant was, do you want to win the game or do you want to say, yeah, man, I mean, we lost, but I said a bunch of stuff that made me feel better. And that's the real question, right? The problem with Democrats is we're all about the feeling. You know, I don't agree with Republicans on 99.9% of the stuff. But the one thing I respect about them is that they get in line together and they often vote as a block and they often work together on whatever the thing is that they want. And I think as Democrats, we could get much further ahead if we did that and look no further than the Green New Deal for evidence of that fact. Most Democrats, all Democrats would say the climate emergency is a horrific thing that we have to deal with. We, like, we can't go unanswered, right? And Nancy Pelosi, through a congresswoman from Florida named Kathy Kasser, had put together this basically like climate emergency task force that was working on legislation created to address all of those issues. 2018 comes and we take the House and, you know, Alexandria comes in and says, I want to create this new thing. And basically fuck the thing you're working on. I want to create this new thing. And, but the issue is that the, the, like the lawyers, like the eggheads who know policy and know how to, how to do this properly, they were working on the task force that already existed. Alexandria comes in and creates the Green New Deal, which is not even a bill. Like if it passed the House and the Senate, it can never be signed by the president because it's not actually a bill. It's a resolution. And so... I've actually read, I've read it. If you read it, it's not, what it is is a framework of ideas that we like, which is great. But my perspective has always been, Alexandria, you have the energy, you have the people behind you, you have the influence on social. Let's take that influence and let's combine that with the work of the eggheads on the other side to get the stuff done that we care about. Because you really can't have one without the other. You need the people and you need the policy. And so at this point, they're both working independently. Why not get something done by working together, right? And that didn't materialize and we are where we are with both sides of those things. But that, from my perspective, it is, is an example of the way that we should be working together, right? It's like a football team. If I can throw and you can run the ball, why would you play quarterback? I should play quarterback because I throw the ball. And I think that often Democrats are hell bent doing everything by themselves and so the ball never gets advanced and that is problematic and i hope that we can fix that it's, it's one last one last thing i just wanted to address so i i agree democratic politics and the democratic party are just so much harder they're just more heterodox they are more it's more negotiation it's more diverse and i think you know it, it's 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 my 
understanding that the de I think the Democratic Party actually has the full spectrum of liberal and conservative. I don't think the Republican Party is quote unquote conservative in 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 the conventional way that we would think about it. It's just a different party. Uh, in terms of, like in the words of of Stuart Stevens, who wrote this this book, I don't know if you've you've, you've checked it out, Mike. Um, but the Republican Party over the last decades has just morphed into this cartel of power. There's two factions, as far as I'm concerned, in the Republican Party that are antithetical to the Democratic Party. The two factions in the Republican Party is the party of white grievance, uh, the party that uh, takes personal offense to the ascendancy of black people um, and sees it as a theft of citizenship. You know, there's, and we clearly know why, because there's a history there. And then the other faction being more um, elitist plutocrats that will partner with the this this sort of faction of the old confederacy in order to get elected into office and appoint judges. Um, that is just, a, I don't even, I don't know what that is. That's just a power, that's just like, a, it's literally a cartel. Whereas the Democratic Party is actually political and, 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 and democratic. And so you're having to negotiate with all of these different factions that have different interests. You know, so I'm not saying that, you, you know, you are equating the two parties, but I think a lot of people just assume this, sort of false equivalence where, oh, these are just different parties with different views and different leanings. You know, so that's one thing that I agree with you that just makes politics on in the Democratic Party harder, but actually more correct. And the last thing I would say is just when you talk about the power balance in the Senate, you have to reconcile to yourself to the fact that the majority in the Senate represents, what, 30 something million, 40 million, 40 something million less people than the minority in the Senate. You know, if, if, you, if we were to actually have this sort of chamber in Congress that was elected popularly, uh, the Democrats would have the majority. They don't, it's minority rule in the Senate. So if you reconcile yourself to that, but, but then you're still trying to like fight the good fight from a, Demo from a, from a Democratic side, it's just like, you're, you know, you're already, you're, already, you're trying to um, overcome like a history of theft in terms of, of the our dynamics in the Senate, like it's our, it's just, it's, it's completely, uh, you know, asymmetrical to begin with. So it's kind of like, we're, we're already like, you know, it's just, it's just insane. Sorry, those are the last things that I, you know, I would say. Um, no, listen, that's a good point. And I think that, I think they have managed the packs together, like the plutocrats with, and the other part that's interesting is the Republican party is full of one issue voters. Right. And that's somehow, Right, like you have millions of people who only vote Republican because they're anti-choice. Right, like that is the only reason they 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 ignore everything else, and you don't find that I think within the Democratic Party because I think you generally have people who are independent thinkers in that regard and say, you know, they, my feelings are nuanced here. Right, I can't have one and ignore the other, and then on the other side, you generally don't get that. Um, Mike, I want to talk about um, the first hundred days, and obviously, you know, we could be in a situation where the Dems even, you know, the split in the Senate, or let, let's just play from the assumption that they either get zero or they get one, which probably is at least on a probability basis, most likely. What do you think, and also that Trump finally disappears, he'll never concede, but we just, we, we move this thing forward, he's tossed out of the White House. What do you think the first hundred days should look like? And I see that, you know, he's starting to put, you know, his, his team together, but obviously cabinet positions, getting things in front of a, a gridlocked Senate, even if it is 50-50, you're still going to be 
trickier. You know, what do you imagine are some of the things that he at least can write off that you imagine, you know, would be kind of smart political moves for him? So he's never going to be stronger than he is in the first year of his presidency. And, you know, you, you imagine he probably, the house probably flips in 2022. And so that being the case, I think he's got to come out strong, not only the first hundred days, but the first 365. And I think that COVID obviously is the first thing he's going to address where he's going to put together a national plan. Once we have a vaccine to make sure it's distributed in the right way and make sure that's handled properly. That doesn't exist. I mean, we had, over the summer, we had a call with um, the Democrats in the House, in the House had a call with the White House and their so-called coronavirus task force, uh, along with Vice President Pence. They had no plan. I can't overemphasize to you how crazy it is that they got on the phone with us and they had no plan as it relates to where their equipment was, how this rollout would happen once we had a vaccine. They had nothing. And so I think for Biden, first thing is he's got to build that infrastructure and make sure that we get the vaccine, make sure we get top of the people that need it, make sure everyone is healthy. Okay, that's one. Two, you need a massive, massive stimulus bill, right? And, and that can look, that can be one of a few things. That can be a standalone stimulus followed by a robust infrastructure bill, or that could just be a large stimulus bill. And it's gotta be something that covers, you know, checks to regular folks, small businesses, like state, state and local governments that are broke across the country. You gotta have something sizable so that everyone um, can get some sort of money in their pockets to keep things going. And, and President-elect Biden has already said that he supports the $3.4 trillion bill the House passed over the summer. And I think that's the smart way to go. You know, the House has passed two bills that the Senate has ignored, the $3.4 trillion bill and a subsequent $2.2 trillion bill. The smarter thing is to start with the 3.4 and negotiate from there, but you gotta have a larger bill that, that really gets the economy going. And I think the third part of that leg is to have a robust infrastructure bill um, that's similar to the $1.5 trillion bill that the House passed over the summer as well. But I think those are, those are the three things you have to get done in the first year. And I think the first 100 days is primarily focused on the coronavirus plan and what that looks like. And then you pivot into a stimulus bill. And look, if the Democrats have the House and don't have the Senate, yeah, that's, that sucks for them. But the good part is Joe Biden spent several decades in the Senate and he more than anyone knows how to navigate that arcane place. He's got the relationships and if anyone can get it done, he can get it done. And it doesn't get done without presidential leadership in terms of whatever that stimulus bill will look like. And that's why we won't have that this year, but we may have it next year. You bring up a good point, right? So if, so if, if you know, if, if we're unable to get this, this Senate, is something we're we actually have... excited about. <laughs> it is something we're excited about. So it's like I, I, uh, Farb had this idea for a while, but I just kind of realized it recently that I think of Biden like an LBJ. Now, 
LBJ is, you know, he's sworn into office after the assassination of, of JFK in 63, but then he wins re-election again in 64. LBJ was there to sign the civil rights bills, which was a continuation of reconstruction that completely turned this country on its head and was the thing that sparked the realignment of these parties. Now, LBJ was not known as some super progressive. Uh, in fact, I think JFK brought him on to like kind of, it's, it's sort of an across the aisle, you know, bring on my VP and JFK is more progressive and JFK put the civil rights legislation or the civil rights bills into motion before he ended up getting assassinated and LBJ finished it off. But I think LBJ only does that because he's a master of the Senate and he spent a long time in the Senate and he knows how to cut deals. And, it, and, and, and this short sort of civil rights moment just fell into his lap. Now, I, I, I wanna draw the parallel to Biden because I think he brings the kind of skills that uh, an LBJ does in terms of his cadence and his weight of navigating Congress because of his just long tenured career um, and his ability to cut deals across the aisle. You know, so I, I think that maybe, listen, we, you know, and, and we got a George Floyd moment like this is a huge, huge sort of tipping over, uh, tipping point somewhat, you know, global eyes on us the same way that they were on LBJ during the Cold War. We have global eyes on us. U.S. wants to stay a superpower and, and be the respected progressive nation. Maybe Biden cut some deals and he, and he uh, is able to pass some really interesting things for black pe people of color, but particularly black people. You know, that is my hope. And, um, you know, I, I see that in Biden as a potential. What do you think? But Ed, yeah, I was going to say just really quickly, it's kind of like, Mike, you were saying in the beginning when I, I asked you that question about, you know, what did Obama do, right? And you're like, like, Obamacare, <laughs> you know, that wasn't specifically black health care, but it, it lifted, you know, millions of people up into a position they weren't in. And that's how I've been thinking about Biden for actually a while now, which was, I was like, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's this moderate guy. He's like, Alexandra, whoever, Bernie, or whoever could be the president, they're not going to get everything they want from a bill once that bill actually comes to term. So when you kind of take a step back and have that, you know, realization, and then you realize that Joe actually is going to listen to, you know, what his constituents want, he, and he's going to, you know, parse everything together. He is someone who actually can get some stuff done. And so even the fact that he is talking about a climate change bill, it's not the Green New Deal, but it's still, you know, a clean energy deal that can bring a lot of jobs. It's also an infrastructure deal that could be actually even some great red meat for the right. You know, I was watching uh, Bill Maher, and I forget who this dude, I think it was the dude Max Berger. He made this comment on Friday talking about how his father was like hunting what they called like Wolverines after World War II, which were like the Nazis who were like, we're never gonna like concede. And he was like, you know, like, which to me is like the never Trumpers. And he's like, well, how did we bring them back in? And he's like, we brought them back in with the Douglas plan. We gave them jobs and they suddenly had to be back. And I started thinking about that and I'm like, look, like this is, you know, the right can scream and yell about clean energy jobs, you know, the green new deal. But if it's at the end of the day, clean energy jobs are actually part of infrastructure jobs. And I have to imagine a lot of those clean energy things are actually gonna go in the states with the most room, which are red states. So there is like the one capacity, which I agree with you, Ed, I think there, 
Joe Biden has the potential to do some great stuff for black people and we'll see, maybe he, it doesn't. But I also th think there is this other side that isn't about like pandering to the right, but is just doing things that just happen to be good for just general working class Americans that could actually be really interesting, especially when it comes to that swing voter that we talked about at the top. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good point. And, you know, I think, Eddie, your, anal your analogy with LBJ is precisely correct because that's the kind of guy that Biden is. I mean, understand one thing. He spent 36 years in the Senate, which is one of the most arcane places on earth as it relates to how they make decisions, as it relates to all the game playing that happens to get things done. He spent 36 years there, right? 24 of those years were with Mitch McConnell. He was there when McConnell came into the Senate. And so I say all that to say, if you work with the guy for 24 years, you probably know a lot about him and you probably know how to deal with him. And Joe Biden is the perfect guy to have the ball at the end of the game for that reason, because he's the guy that knows how to deal with the Senate more than anyone else. And so I think for that reason, we should be hopeful. But also, I mean, look, you know, in 2009, President Obama signed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act to help jumpstart the economy, right? It was like, I think it was around $800 billion or so. And Joe Biden was our partner in working with the Senate to get that done, right? Like he helped President Obama navigate like those hallways and those avenues. And I think that I'm actually incredibly hopeful for that one reason. If it can get done, he's the guy to get it done. And, and you're right, like he's not gonna, he's not the Green New Deal guy, but that's not the guy you need. You know, again, do you wanna win the game or do you wanna feel good? Which one are we doing here? Because Biden's about winning the game, right? So I'm gonna pass him the ball because I know he's gonna win the game. And I think that's what Democrats should be about. If we come out of the gate, next year and start attacking the guy because he's not immediately addressing our super progressive ideals, we're going to damage the guy who's trying to win us the game. I mean, what side are we on, right? The guy is going to win by six and a half million popular votes. Like he's the guy. <laughs> he won the game. He won the, so I, I feel like we should let him do his thing. And that's the biggest thing. I think as progressives, we have to say to Joe Biden, how can we help you, right? What do you need us to do? All right, you need me to do this or you need me to not say anything, done. That's the only thing we should be because he knows how to navigate those hallways. He knows what to do. We should just let him do it instead of trying to tell him what needs to be done. Who do you think are the most important potential cabinet appointments or, or not even the people per se, but the positions? Yeah, I think Treasury is really interesting. And I think it's interesting because well, first of all, you could have your first black treasury secretary in Roger Ferguson, who's incredibly talented and qualified. Um, you know, people are throwing around Elizabeth Warren, that, that's not a thing, but that's okay. Or you could have a woman, you know, you could have Janet Yellen or, or a few other options there. I think, that's, I think that's a critical role because of what we're heading into, which is a period where we are gonna have to spend a substantial amount of money and I don't just mean stimulus through the government, but in terms of, are we gonna look at quantitative easing? Like, is that gonna be a thing, right? Like, how are, we gonna, how are we going to continue to expand the economy and give businesses certainty in terms of making sure they can get back on their feet after this pandemic? You know, I'm in Chicago right now, downtown, and there are a lot of boarded up high-end restaurants and stores. 
and that's the case across America, someone's got to make sure those places can come back. And so I think treasury is one. I think, you know, another interesting one will be um, the Department of Education. What are we going to do there, right? In terms of, are you going to get someone there who is about forgiving student loan debt? Are you going to get someone in there who's about scaling back the parade of horrors that the Trump administration has moved forward with under Betsy DeVos, right? Like, are we going to get somewhere, someone in there who understands that most of us regular kids who took on student debt to get through college were kind of duped in terms of that whole process, right? So I think that's going to be critical as well. And, and obviously, the Justice Department is, is just central to all of this. And that has to get done correctly. You have to have a real hate crimes operation that addresses the fact that the number one threat to American democracy is the white supremacist movement in our country. Someone's got to deal with that in a real way. And obviously under Trump, obviously it didn't get dealt with. And he also facilitated a lot of their nonsense. But President Biden has to put somebody in there who's really going to address that particular part, who's really going to address the spate of hate crimes over the past several years, most recently with this possible lynching of this young teenage brother. And someone's got to deal with all those things. And I think that the Justice Department and the Attorney General in that pit is also absolutely important um, as well. Well, yeah, that, I, I've, I've never been more excited for to hear about cabinet appointees in my life. I mean, security, like everyone is just guys, there's a really good thing. And that is that Joe Biden has appointed Cedric Richmond to a senior post in the White House. And, and for the listeners, if they're not as familiar with Cedric Richmond, he's a younger congressman from New Orleans. I think he's 48 or 49. And not only is he a hell of a baseball player, but he's a real dude. And I've been in many meetings with him where whomever the speaker was, be it the speaker of the house or, or whomever it may be, confront you if something is not right. He will speak up on behalf of black folks and other groups of people who have been disadvantaged. He's that guy who holds his tongue for no one. And he now has a senior role in the White House. And that is good news for progressives, for black folk, and for everyone else. Yeah, I saw you post about him and I'm glad you clarified that because I, I knew about him, but I didn't, didn't know much about him to be honest. He's that dude. I was just gonna say, um, yeah, that feels like a good place to end it. Optimistic, an optimistic note. Before we go, Mike, shout out your your company and your website one more time, just so the people know where to find you. Uh, Hardaway Wire is the name of our company. We are a political intelligence firm that is working on the future of news. Boom. There we go. And there you have it. All right, Mike. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. This is awesome. We'll talk soon. Hey, um, can I expect that Rolex uh, <laughs> that you're going to be sending me for coming on the show? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's already in the mail, baby. I don't know baby. which one I want, though. I don't know which one I want. I got to think about it. You want the Daytona, right? <laughs> no, no, not the Daytona. I want, uh, I want the, uh, what's the one? What's the yachting one with the circle? Oh, man, my watch game's not that deep. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, this is fun. Right, we'll have to have you back, man. It's going to be a crazy year. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, man, absolutely. Take care, guys. Peace.